Part 6 of An Excursion to the Lakes in Westmoreland and Cumberland, August 1773, by William Hutchinson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Grasmere and Home via Kendall We were charmed with the view of Grasmere, a retirement surrounded by hills on every hand. The vale is about four miles in circumference of meadow and pasture ground. Near the middle of this valley is a fine lake, beautified with an island. From a mount a little distance from the church, we viewed the whole circle, delighted with the situation. The fields were full of freshness and verdure. The scene was ornamented with a few humble cottages dispersed on the borders of the lake, amongst which the sacred fane stood solemnly superior. The hills were here and there graced with a few trees, and animated by white flocks of sheep. It seemed to be the perfect vale of peace. We had not passed far from this sweet sequestered scene before we entered Rydale, where we were again charmed with new retreats and happy retirements. Here we found a cultivated vale, not equal in width to Grasmere, but full of pretty enclosures and watered with a lake on which a fine woody island arises. We passed along the windings of this dale till we reached the seat of Sir Michael Fleming, an ancient mansion, standing on the opening of the dale, on the southern decline of the hills which abound in woodland, and front to the lake of Windermere. The ground before this seat is prettily diversified with irregular knots of trees, situate on natural eminences, and scattered with such agreeable wildness and irregularity that they seem to be the work of nature. The interspaces between these knots of trees were mown in narrow meandering walks. At the distance of half a mile, opposite to the house, are lofty rocks and hanging woods of oak, which form the channel of the river that feeds the lake. Ambleside is situate on the swift decline of a hill, over which many high mountains arise towards the north. The first appearance of our inn induced us to apprehend we should hasten our departure, but the assiduous desire of pleasing shown in the conduct of the people counterbalanced their deficiencies. Here we met with a gentleman, Mr Penny of Pennybridge, who was conversant with every curiosity in the country. His polite and genteel behaviour rendered our stay at Ambleside very agreeable. By this gentleman's directions, his servants conducted us about a mile up the woody declivity of the hill behind the inn, where we saw a most amazing cascade, totally different from anything we had met with upon our tour. Making so great an ascent, and not having reached a third of the height of this eminence, it might be supposed that when we gained the view, it would be something extraordinary. The rushing of the waters in the fall sounded through the wood as we approached it, and seemed at once as if it was bursting over our heads and tumbling beneath our feet. This was soon reconciled, for in a few steps we perceived ourselves to be upon the summit of a cliff which overhung the channel of the stream, where an old oak suspended his romantic boughs over the precipice. This was the only opening of the wood or situation where we could look into this tremendous gulf. The river which falls here arises on the very height of the mountains and flows in a very confined channel through an opening of rocks, the edges of which were grown with stately trees and thronged with thickets of hazel, birch and holly, 
we could look upwards from the place where we stood for about 100 perpendicular yards, where we saw the river in two streams pouring through the trees. About the midway it united and was again broken by a craggy rock, grown with fern and brushwood, which threw it into two branches, foaming and making a horrid noise. But it soon united again, and from thence precipitated into a deep and dreary gulf for above sixty yards below the cliff on which we stood, from whence it tumbled from rock to rock, and dashed through a rough and craggy channel down to the town of Ambleside with a mighty sound which shook the air so as to give a sensible agitation to the nerves, like the effect of a thunderclap. The whiteness of the fretting waters was beautifully contrasted by the black rocks which formed their passage. It was almost impossible for the steadiest eye to look upon this waterfall without giddiness. Its beauties for a painter were noble and various. The wood which hung upon the rocks over the stream was of mixed hues, the trees projecting from each precipice knotty and grotesque. The cliffs were black and fringed with ivy and fern, which give a singular lustre to the waterfall. No fancy could exceed the happy assemblage of objects which rendered this view picturesque. The traces of Ambleside's antiquity are not now to be found. The inhabitants have not preserved any of the Roman monuments which were formerly discovered here. From Ambleside we went to Bowness, a small village on the shore of the Lake of Windermere. This was a delightful ride, lying within a little distance of the water, which was open to our view as we passed through various turnings of the road. The sides of the way are ornamented with woods, meadows and pasture ground. The owner of the White Lion Inn at Bowness has a boat on the lake, with which we were accommodated. This lake is very different from those we had seen in Cumberland, being in length about 12 computed miles, and not a mile in width in the broadest part. The hills seen around the lake, except those above Ambleside, are humble. The margin of the water is irregular and indented, and everywhere composed of cultivated lands, woods and pastures, which descend with an easy fall into the lake, forming a multitude of bays and promontories, and giving it the appearance of a large river, in the narrowest parts, not unlike to the Thames below Richmond. On that part where Furness Fell forms the shore, the scene is more rude and romantic. The western side of this lake is in Lancashire, the eastern in Westmoreland. As we sailed down the lake from Bowness, we had two views which comprehended all its beauties. We rested upon the oars in a situation where looking down the lake we took into the prospect the greatest extent of water. The shore was indented by woody promontories which shot into the lake on each side to a considerable distance. To the right were the hills of Furness Fell, which are the highest that arise immediately from the water, consisting chiefly of rocks, which though not rugged and deformed have their peculiar beauty, being scattered over with trees and shrubs, each of which grows separate and distant. The brow of this rock overlooks a pretty peninsula on which the ferryboat house stands, concealing its white front in a grove of sycamores. Whilst we were looking on it, the boat was upon its way with several horse passengers, which greatly graced the scene. To the left a small island of a circular form, laid covered with a thicket of ash and birch wood, beyond which the hills that arose from the lake in gentle ascents to the right were covered with rich herbage and irregular groves. 
on the left side of the lake enclosures of meadow sweeping gently away from the water lay bounded by a vast tract of woods and overtopped with hills of moorish ground and heath the most distant heights which formed the background were fringed with groves over which they lifted their brown eminences in various shapes upwards on the lake we looked on a large island of about 30 acres of meagre pasture ground in an irregular oblong figure here and there some misshapen oak trees bend their crooked branches on the sandy brinks and one little grove of sycamores shelters a cottage the few natural beauties of this island are wounded and distorted by some ugly rows of firs set in right lines and by the works now carrying on by mr english the proprietor who is laying out gardens on a square plan building fruit walls and preparing to erect a mansion house there the want of taste is a misfortune too often attending the opulent the romantic sight of this place on so noble a lake and surrounded with such scenes asked for the finest imagination to have designed the plan of an edifice and pleasure grounds but instead of that to see a dutch burgomaster's palace arise on this place to see a cabbage garth extend its bosom to the east squared and cut out at right angles is so offensive to the eye of the traveller that he turns away with disgust for pleasure or for ornament a narrow footpath is cut round the margin of the island and laid with white sand resembling the dusty paths of foot passengers over stepney fields or the way along which the owner often has hayed to hackney i would overlook this misshapen object while i viewed the lake upwards with its environs the beautiful crags of furnace fell over which trees are dispersed in an agreeable wildness form the front ground on the left and by their projection cover the hills which are further advanced towards the head of the lake which makes a curve bearing from the eye three small woody islands of a fine circular figure and swelling to a crown in their centres arise from out of the lake with the deep verdure of their trees giving an agreeable tint to the azure hue the water received from reflection of the serene sky above over an expanse of water of the length of six miles and near a mile in breadth shining and bright as a mirror we viewed the agreeable variety of the adjacent country to the right woodlands and meadows in many little peninsulas and promontories descended with easy slopes to the brink of the lake where we viewed bonus church and its cottages arising above the trees beyond which lay the seat of fletcher fleming esq situate on the brink of the lake and covered on every side with rich woodland further were cots and villages dispersed upon the rising ground in the front stood ambleside and at the opening of the deep vale of rydale the house of sir michael fleming shielded on either hand by a wing of hanging forests climbing up the steps of the mountains the nearest background to the right is composed of an eminence called orest head rising gradually to a point and cultivated to its crown which sweet mount is contrasted by the vicinage of the crags of Biscotho, which overtop the extensive woodlands of mr fleming then troutbeck parks arise where the hills begin to increase in magnitude and form the range of mountains which are extended to keswick diversified with pasturage dells and cliffs looking over which langdon pikes three mountains rising in perfect cones extend their heads surmounted only by the rocky and barren brow of kirkston fell whose cliffs overlook the whole 
The lake of Windermere differs very much from those of Holswater and Keswick. Here almost every object in view on the whole lake confesses cultivation. The islands are numerous but small and woody and rather bear a resemblance to the artificial circles raised on gentlemen's ponds for their swans. The great island is little better than a bank of sand but is now under the spoiling hand of a deformer. The innumerable promontories are composed of fine meadow ground and ranges of trees. The hills except Furness Fell and those above Ambleside are tame and on every hand a vast expanse of woodland is stretched upon the view. The painters of Poussin describe the nobleness of Hullswater. The works of Salvatore Rosa express the romantic and rocky scenes of Keswick and the tender and elegant touches of Claude Lorraine and Smith pencil forth the rich variety of Windermere. The greatest depth of Windermere, we were told, was not more than 40 fathom. The water abounds in pike, trout, char, eels and perch. The lake, whilst we visited it, was covered with the boats of fishing parties, it being customary for the country people, after their hay harvest, to make their days of jubilee in that diversion. In the church of Bowness is a window of painted glass which was preserved at the dissolution of Furness Abbey and brought hither. The present remains show that it has contained very fine colouring in its former state. The arms of France and England, quartered, are well preserved at the top of the window. The design is a crucifixion in figures as large as life. By the hands, feet and parts remaining, it seems to have been of singular beauty. On the dexter side of the crucifixion, is St George slaying the dragon, on the sinister the Virgin Mary, an uncouth assemblage. Beneath are the figures of a knight and his lady kneeling, before whom are a group of kneeling monks, over whose head are wrote W. Hartley, Thomas Honson and other names, by the breaking of the glass rendered not legible. Furness Abbey was dedicated to St Mary, to whom also Bowness is inscribed. We went from Windermere to Kendal, the road lies chiefly over barren and rocky hills, without change or variety to afford any pleasure to the traveller. Towards the right, in the course of the way, appeared two openings, which showed to us a small bay of the sea, but these without any degree of beauty. We descended to the town of Kendal, rejoiced to change the prospects from barrenness and waste to a rich cultivated vale and a town thronged with industrious inhabitants busied in a prosperous manufactory. Kendall stands on the side of a hill facing to the east. As we looked over the buildings from the heights which we were descending, we had a view of the ruins of Kendall Castle, seated on the crown of a fine eminence at the distance of half a mile from the town and separated from it by the river Cam, over which two stone bridges are thrown. The castle is now totally in decay and scarce gives any idea by its present appearance of its ancient strength and grandeur. On the front opposite to the town, the remains of bastions are seen at the southeast and northwest corners, whilst all behind consists of confused and ragged walls. The whole has formed a square defended by a ditch. Above the town of Kendal, immediately opposite to the castle, is a mole of a very singular form, called by the inhabitants Castle Law Hill. Above the town, some rocks show themselves of the height of seven fathom, or near it, on which a mount has been thrown up of gravel and earth, of an exact circular form, arising from the plain on top of the rock near thirty feet. 
At the front adjoining the town is a spacious level, on part of which a bowling green is now made. The mole is defended by a deep ditch which extends itself from the brink of the rocks, and on the right and left the plain is fortified by an inferior mole or mount. The crown of the great mole is flat and has been defended by a breastwork of earth and a narrow ditch, and from east to west a ditch is struck through the centre. The whole circumference of the crown is 61 paces. The account given by the inhabitants of this place is that it was cast up for battering the castle, but for this purpose there was no need of so laborious a work, it being also much above the level of the castle, opposite to which many natural eminences might serve for that end. We passed from Kendal to Barrowbridge, a single house, situate in a very narrow deep valley, hemmed in on every side by mountains covered with verdure. A fine stream serpentines through the vale, and here and there little cottages are dispersed with scanty enclosures of meadow ground, over which hangs a narrow wood, from the rising of the hills. Shut in on every side, this is a place calculated for the most solemn retirement. In winter, the rays of the sun for several weeks do not touch the vale, but only gild the mountains, along whose sides the opposite land sends an extensive shadow, whose gradations are daily marked by the watchful eye of the peasant, longing for returning vegetation. Here might the recluse enjoy the pleasures of solitude and sacrifice to virtue. Here might he avoid the sins of the world and commune with his own soul, and whilst commenting on the wondrous scene before him, look through nature up to nature's God, Pope. We walked along the banks of the brook that murmured through the pebbles. We strayed over the little meads, we sauntered in every grove, charmed with the deepness of the retirement. The pleasures of the scene were enhanced to me by my recollection of past felicity, which I had enjoyed from an evening ramble in these sequestered walks. Ideas flowed upon my mind, replete with delicate sentiments, whilst images of a happy complexion possessed reflection and presented to me my family and my beloved infants. Joy and affection melted my whole soul, and involuntary tears took the silent expression of my tenderness and transport. Lost in selfishness, I have trespassed upon my reader, and covered a page with impropriety. I hope the digression may be pardoned. From hence we continued our route to Kirby Stephen, near which place we visited the ruins of Pendragon Castle, of which the remains of a square tower only are left, and that most probably of a modern date. For this place was repaired, after it had laid in ruins for near two centuries, by the Countess of Pembroke, about the time she had restored Bruff. The situation of this place being in a deep dell on every hand overlooked by mountains from whence it might be annoyed, shows it never could be built as a place of strength, but rather as a retreat and place of concealment in times of danger. Opposite to this place, on the other side of the dell, is a small entrenchment fortified by a ditch and vallum, but of what date or people no accounts can be obtained. The Prince Uta Pendragon is of doubtful existence, but is said to have died by treachery and poison put in a well in the year 515. We passed by the ancient seat of the Wharton family in Wharton Parks, now in decay. Melancholy reflections arise on such a view when the traveller must necessarily exclaim with a sigh, such are the effects of dissipation and vice.
End of part six. Recorded by Grasmere Lake. End of an excursion to the lakes in Westmoreland and Cumberland, August 1773, by William Hutchinson. Recorded by Phil Benson.